Sean. Yes, Mike. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Mike. Shall we begin? Yes, Mike. Welcome to the George Sanders Show 1984 Spectacular. It's our final episode of the year for 2014, uh, the second of our two year-end specials, and this episode is just going to be all about cinema 30 years ago. We're not talking about anything that happened this year in movies, and I couldn't be happier about that. Um, you've already done like three hours of 2014 on your other podcast, Sean, right? Yeah, it was exhausting. <laughs> Uh, and we're going to talk about 2014 on this show uh, in a couple months when uh, the Oscars come around and we do all that stuff. Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be talking about real 2014 on that show. No, no. Yeah, none of this Lucy, pussyfooting around. Yeah, yeah. No, no loose definitions of of the term. Only 2014 movies need apply to our Oscar show. That's right, because we are stuck up pricks. But this show, we're not going to talk about it. Uh, it's all 1984 all the time. Um, as you heard at the top of the show, we just listened to some prints. Uh, you know, we couldn't listen to anything else on the 1984 episode. Uh, you know, I think the Purple Rain soundtrack is probably the greatest soundtrack, um, definitely of of, that, of this year. We'll talk about that a little bit, probably. I'm sure, because it, it's a great year for music in cinema. Um, you know, hopefully, we don't get sued by Prince. Uh, you know, as we mentioned at the end of the last show, it's it's kind of murky waters. You know. But we're we're gonna try it. We're gonna do it. Hopefully, we don't get pulled off the uh, the internet air waves, as it were. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna talk about two films in depth: uh, John Cassavetes' Love Streams and uh, Walter Hill's uh, Streets of Fire, um, both from that year. And we're gonna, in the middle of the show, we're gonna give out awards for performances and screenplay, director, and list our top ten films of the year 1984. And before we go any further, I just want to say. Um, I've watched 49 movies, according to my list here, that are 1984 movies. Um, and 1984, Sean, I was kind of surprised, is a really freaking good year for movies. It is. I, I, I have seen 59, but uh, maybe the last 10 of those aren't very good. So Yeah, I would uh, say, I'd say my, top, my top 20, maybe even like my top half of this are all really good movies that I would I would push people to to seek out. Um, yeah, which I'd, I, I'd say there's a, at least forty movies worth watching that I've seen from 1984. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited. You know, when I think we decided this this date, I was like, you know, 
you know, in American cinema, or there's kind of this this idea that at least in America during the '80s there was kind of this kind of dearth with film, um, where it's you know doesn't reach any real artistic highs or whatever. And you know, looking at my top ten list, okay, a lot of these movies aren't actually from America, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, but we've got some good stuff to talk about, and uh, yeah, I there's some there's some really great American films from this year. Some really oh, some really weird experimental kind of stuff that you wouldn't really expect and uh the two movies we're going to talk about are are great examples of that i think absolutely absolutely um yeah and and even uh the big um uh, the big films you know of of even this year alone you know you've got movies like uh as we mentioned purple rain which uh you know you can debate whether or not it's a great movie i think it's fantastic well it's a, uh, it's a fantastic year for musicals it might be the yeah. best year for musicals since like the classical Hollywood era. There's oh, it's incredible! There's Absolutely incredible. Purple Rain and Footloose and and Streets of Fire and and Stop Making Sense and yeah, yeah, wonderful stuff. So the yeah, Cotton let's, Club. Let's dive into it. Yeah. Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's let's go into it with a discussion of John Cassavetti's Love Streams. Not really sure this was such a great idea. I mean, I don't feel any better than I did at the hotel. He was going to do a uh, TV special from here before he died. Yeah, that's right. A musical version of Somebody Up There Likes Me. <sighs> well, since my baby left me, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel. Do, do it with the harmony parts. Right. Well, since, since my, my baby... baby the same key, though, I think. Well, since my baby left me, if I'm going, since my baby left me, me. No, you can't hit that note. Since my, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. That's all right. Well, well, think. Oh, it sounds raga. You don't want to go raga. No, not with this. It don't. It does. Since my baby left me. Sounds fucking barbershop. Well, hey, barbershop raga. Okay, that was a clip from Love Streams, uh, 1984, of course, uh, directed by John Cassavetes and starring him and Gina Rollins. Um, it's adapted from a play uh, by Ted Allen. Uh, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Cassavetes. And it's a really interesting movie. Um, it's about... Cassavetes plays a writer um, who is a drunken, womanizing, uh, party animal, very self-destructive kind of guy. Um, and then his sister, played by Gina Rollins, who is uh, going through a divorce, and she's uh, not totally all there mentally. Um, and... It kind of follows their two divergent kind of stories for the first hour or so. They don't they don't connect with each other. We see him, um, you know, getting drunk, you know, getting in car accidents, making out with women, um, and taking his eight year old son, who he's never met before, to Vegas um, for for a brief interlude. Meanwhile, she's going through this divorce thing. She goes off to Europe. Um, the advice of her psychiatrist uh, to kind of clear her head, etc. Um, but then the second half of the movie, she shows up at his house um, and uh, 
they they kind of come together and they're they're very there's this kind of dance between the two of them and and the movie's kind of about what is love what what is the attachment of love how does how does love work is and it, she mentions twice in the movie love is like a stream it doesn't stop it keeps flowing and there's an argument whether or not that is true um or not um this is the second Cassavetes film that i've seen um it is, not, it's my second as well. Okay. I'm not, uh, yeah. So it's Cassavetes is kind of a blind spot for me. I'm not, um, I, yeah, I don't know everything about the guy. I know kind of his style and, and stuff. And this is very much from what I gather, what a Cassavetes type movie is. Um, and we'll, we'll dive into that in a little bit here. Um, I liked this a lot more than the previous Cassavetes movie that I saw, which was, uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie. Um, which has a really good lead performance from Ben Gazzara in it, but I remember not really getting on the wavelength with the movie on the whole, um, which is not the case here. Um, what, what was the one that you'd seen before, Sean? Uh, Woman Under the Influence, mm. which uh, is a, a similarly difficult and, and somewhat opaque movie with with really strong acting and... Uh, uh, in this case, uh, Gina Rollins and, and Peter Falk. Um, but it's a movie that I liked a lot, despite uh, a lot of dread going into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll admit I, I'll admit there was some trepidation going into Love Streams. Um, I've been watching a lot, of, as we were talking about, you know, a lot of 1984 movies leading up to this show. And a lot of the ones that I was wa- I've been watching in the last month or so um, filling in some gaps and stuff have been really fun, um, kind of B movies, you know, just kind of goofy, weird, like you were talking about some weird American genre fair. Um, and the Cassavetes was kind of looming over my head a little bit, um, going into it, but I really took to this movie. I think this movie is, I, I think it's a, it's a number of things. I think this movie is hilarious. Um, there is some, some wonderful comedy in here. Um, there's a, there, this, you know, in it's, but it's also very dark, um, comedy. It's, it's black humor, you know, the seeing the parenting style of John Cassavetes as he takes his son under his wing and gets him drunk and takes him to Vegas and stuff is, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, depressing stuff as well. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it was funny. Like there there are funny bits in it, but I wouldn't say it's a funny movie. Like cuz there's just an overwhelming sadness about it. This movie made me sad. Yeah, no, and that's absolutely true as well. Um however, I was I was shocked by how funny I did find certain elements of the movie. I did laugh out loud at this thing um, several times. And you you and I uh, both latched onto a line, which I think uh, might be the funniest in the movie. Uh, I'll come back for the duck later. Is, uh, or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I, I liked those funny moments so much. That, and there's uh, when Gina Rollins goes bowling. Uh, Fantastic. There's the, uh, the egg that Seymour Cassell sleeps in. And there's every, everything having to do with with the animals, not not just the duck. Like I I I, I feel like I'm like grasping onto those things as like the only, you know, the only fun in the movie because it's just everything else. Like even 
you know, I, I get the dark comedy of, of drunk Cassavetti's parenting style, but it just, it's so dark. Yeah. But I, I, you know, maybe because I'm not a parent, I could, I could watch it from a, a distance and be like, ah, kid's totally wasted and his head's bleeding. And, <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. dad took him to Vegas and left him in a hotel room while he went out and picked up women and and just the the anguish on that kid's face when when the dad finally comes back and and Cassavetti's uh character's uh just unbelievability is like I told you I was going out all night right <laughs> I we were you agreed to be a man about this yeah I was gonna go out all night um so it's yeah just... it's definitely it, it's 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 humor that's that's taken from a very dark place um but it but it worked for me I thought and I thought that it actually got funnier as it went along um, I, it got a little lighter, you know, once, yeah, Gina Rollins goes to this, uh, to, you know, to, as, as an exercise in kind of bringing love into her brother's life, she thinks that if she gets him, um, a little creature, you know, she says a baby, uh, several times, but she ends up going to this animal farm and, and bringing home, you know, two miniature horses, a goat, a dog, a duck. She brings home, you know, uh, just a menagerie of, of, of animals. And that's just, that's just hilarious, it's, especially it's, running through this house that earlier we've seen just a bunch of beautiful women, you know, going through every, you know, nook and cranny of this place. And now it's being overrun by farm animals. Um, yeah, it's it's funny, but it comes out of such out of such desperation that it's 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 also really sad. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, uh you know, sweep all that under the rug. And that, and that's why I think this movie is so good. That's why I responded to this movie is because there is an anguish there. And as performed by Cassavetes, and in particular, uh, Gina Rollins is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, she just, she so much wants, wants, uh, she like oppressively wants to love her family. And she, she goes to desperate lengths for it. There's There's a scene near the end where she's acting out like this, this kind of clownish comedy routine for her her ex husband and uh, and her daughter that it's it's really funny you know technically because she's a a funny performer and she's just really good at this bad comedy but it's also it's just so horrible. <laughs> that scene is is might be well her bowling was was on 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 par but uh, that scene to me, it might sum up the picture. Like, it is so desperate and so depressing. Um, but it's such a... Yeah, it's 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 perfectly done. And she sells it, the whole thing. Um, she's doing these increasingly desperate jokes with prop comic, you know, uh, prop comedy, you know, stuff. And, um, yeah, I think that's the key to the movie right there is that scene because it really taps into all of those... Um, all that anguish within her and all all of that desperation and all of uh you know this this guttural desire to you know just like consume her entire family um and it's it's awesome i mean she she as we see from the beginning of the movie uh she thinks what she's doing is you know for the good of the family but her daughter doesn't want to be with her cuz it's too depressing and she drags her off to see family members that she doesn't know and um but she takes her to like old folks homes and weddings and funerals just of of strangers because those people need love too well right well also the, she mentions that a lot of them are her uh ex-husbands you know um 
family, like his extended okay. family too at one point. Um, and yeah, but then the daughter's like, oh, they're old people, they smell. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, so she's going through a lot. And um, it's really interesting to see the transformation. I wouldn't even call it a transformation, but Cassavetes surrounds himself in the first half. He's he's always got two women on his arm. He's always, you know, um, on the make and he's, he's, you know, he's just constantly womanizing and hitting on people. And then all of that is really just yanked away from him uh, when she arrives and he's he's suddenly alone in in, in the frame, in the film. Um, yeah, but even, you know, when he's womanizing, he's not he's not charming at all. Oh, good God, no. He's a total jerk. Like, there's the singer. There's a singer that he's kind of uh, trying to hook up with that she performs in a, you know, a nightclub. And uh, he, he, uh, he follows her into the parking lot, uh, totally wasted, um, offers her a ride. She says, no, I've got my car here. He, like, pushes her so he can drive her car, crashes her car refuses to get out of it or move over so she can drive. Uh, and then he, he gets to her house uh, bloodied and beat up. He falls down the stairs and then uh, he sleeps on her couch and the next morning they like make out first. <laughs> it's totally insane. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I don't get it. Like he's, he's rich, he's a famous author and he's just... I don't know. Is, is there there's something about his just not giving a shit what people think about him that is attractive? I mean, that's got to be it. Of, that's got to be it, right? Yeah, I think it, that's part of it, and also I think uh, you know it's mentioned several times that um, he's a writer. He, you know, he he's clearly um, well to do. Like he, you know, he's he's clearly oh, yeah, they're, they're, successful. They're both very rich, um, and so I think that some of that plays into it too, as well as you know the fact that he's got money. And then on top of that, um, as Gina Roland says several times throughout the film, or not several times, but uh, he uh, he writes about sex, you know. Yeah. And I think there's an allure there to some of these women, you know, is that. Uh, maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll somehow find their way into his book or something, you know, along those lines. Um, but to be fair, you know, it, it's still a sleazy scene, but he, the scene later when he's like charming the mom of the, uh, the singer woman. Yeah. There's, there's a little kind of drunken sweetness. There's a kind that. of drunken sweetness to that, but still on the whole, he's a total prick. And, yeah, uh, uh, you know, to to a large extent, I think it might be a, a generational thing, because I, I don't think a character like that would be allowed to act like that now and get away with it in right. the same and, way. But 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 these characters, this, and this was was freaking me out as I was watching this movie. Uh, they are uh, Rollins and, and Cassavetes are pretty much exactly the same age as my grandparents. Whoa! And and I'm the same age as as uh, Cassavetti's kid. You're not as ugly movie. as this kid. Yeah. Well, it's ugly. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> I was an adorable eight year old, but. Uh, so yeah, that that kind of parallel was was kind of freaking me out. Yeah, it is a different world. I mean, it yeah. really it really is. Like you know, you you think about it, you know. Uh, 30 years is a long stretch of time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the world is completely different nowadays. Um, and like you said, I, I feel like you could, you might see a character like him in a movie nowadays, but 
as you also said, he wouldn't get away with it. You know oh. what I mean? Like he he might womanize, he might all those you know all those things might happen, but um, there would be some sort of ramification or some sort of reckoning or something. Well, well, and, and if you put him in a movie like that, you would be a, you wouldn't be as as ambiguous about the way that you're supposed to judge that character. You'd mm-hmm. have you'd have something like Listen Up, Philip, where you have like a a, a, a writer who's uh, misanthropic. And you're supposed to not like that guy. Uh, here, it's it's not really clear. Like, I I don't I don't hate the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that that Cassavetes is is trying to judge him. I think, but I feel I feel sorry for him. I feel sad. Oh yeah. Which is which well, is a, a weird emotion, and I keep and I keep saying that, but it's it's rare that a movie asks you to to feel that way. And it's it's hard it's hard to do because I don't think he he wants us to pity them, but to kind of empathize with them and you know feel sad ourselves. Which is what makes this so fascinating, you know. Like I, I find that much more interesting than just watching some, you know, total jerk author. You know, um, I don't know that you know it it. it Reminds me of uh, <laughs> here we go uh, the La Tigre song uh, you know what's your take on Cassavetes you know and which is a really fascinating song because um, it brings up all of those kind of elements of Cassavetes where you can't really pinhole pin point him you know like is he a misogynist or is he a genius is he both is he all of these things is what you know what's going on here um, and that's kind of what makes this so interesting to wrestle with. Um, as opposed to like, oh, I'm painting a p- portrait of a total aloof, you know, uh, jerk of a writer and blah, blah, blah. I don't care about you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I meant to do some some reading about this, some research, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I know I know this is this is a very popular film among Cassavetes fans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can and I can see why because it is it is it's really unpredictable and it's really unexpected and yeah there's a, there's a lot of goodness here the 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 movie it, it reminded me of weirdly was uh, only lovers left alive the uh, the Jim Jarmusch film which uh, which similarly is about a, a pair that are kind of color coded black and white. And one of them is really kind of cynical and depressing, and the other one is is very expansive and opened up to the world. And I, as I'm watching this the movie, I kind of keyed in on that. And it seems like both of them are both Cassavetes and Rollins are are vampiric in some way. Like like Cassavetes is you know drinking and 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 womanizing and and totally you know ignoring uh, his child. Uh, just kind of sucking the life out of life, and and Rollins is is like feeding off of the attention and love that she gets from other people. Hmm. They're both they're both kind of monstrous in their own ways. Oh, they're both they're both total monsters. And and also, uh, Cassavetes likes to listen to music. <laughs> That's true. The jukebox. I think that would be the that, that would be my uh, you know connection between the two. Because yeah, I I see that. Um, you know, I think the two movies are, are dealing with totally different things though. You know, the, their hearts are in different places like this, you know, that movie's about, uh, only lovers left alive is about, um, 
fine you know it, it's about aesthetics it's about art it's about all those things and this you know i mean this is about as as it i mean it's blatant it's about love and what does love mean and and um well i think i think they're both about how how we choose to engage with the world and with other people and yeah. and you know the 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 Jarmusch movie uses uses art as a as like a corollary for that as like a substitute for for that but but the basic the basic attitudes are the same the the kind of expansive or or contractive sure view sure i know i totally i see i see that um yeah it's but it's but it's interesting here because in only lovers left alive um it's it's the split is it's a it's it's more obvious which side you should be rooting for um yeah, if you if you think, uh, well, I I think it's obvious, but but most reviews of the film say seem to think that that Jarmish sides with the the Huddleston character, where I think he's obviously on on Tilda Swinton's side. But yeah, I think so too. I yeah. yeah. Um, do they? Do people think that? Yeah, and I've that's... mentioned that to people, and they're like, really? Yeah. That's pretty silly, but um, but uh, but in here, I feel like as we mentioned with his character alone, I think the lines are a little more blurred because, as we said, they're both incredibly destructive. <laughs> yeah, and well, I think I think Jarmish is 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 after more uh, kind of a balance as as he's seeing like the the balance of the two characters is something that we should strive for. You can, you, know, you can be a little cynical, but you should also be open to the world. Whereas the, the Cassavetes film seems to think that, uh, you're terrible in this way or you're terrible in that way. <laughs> and there's very little hope in the movie, which I mean, right. there, there, there's some hope, you know, there's, the, the you side, know, the side characters, the, the people that they meet, the guy that she meets in the bowling alley seems like a nice guy or the, uh, uh, the uh, the the woman who sells the animals and like all of the cab drivers that drive all these people and the and the porters that are that like the porter that helps her with her luggage in in London not the French one the French guy's a jerk the French guy's a dick yeah but the English one is really nice so yeah, my... there there are like people out there that are not you know crippled in the way that that Cassavetes and Rollins are so. Well, yeah, it's good. I'm glad you brought up the taxi drivers because, yeah, my review on Letterboxd was going to be, uh, you know, <laughs> like the lives of taxi drivers, you know, are, it's pretty ex- exhilarating stuff because, I mean, throughout this movie, they're constantly like they're doing the weirdest things for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, but also I think that the I think the movie also has hope for these characters insofar as um, the once that once the pets show up, once the animals show up. Like Gina Rollins, I mean, okay, she has her little breakdown, um, but but then the dog licks her face and she feels okay. Well, she has a serious medical condition, and Cassavetti sends the doctor away. Well, because he's a total dick. But then the dog, <laughs> then the dogs, you know, spends the night with her, and she wakes up with the dog licking her face, and she's like, you know what, I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to advocate for people to get dogs. Is basically what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to say if you do not have a dog. It'll make your life a little bit better. So, yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm a cat person, and you're and you're horrible because of it. And that's, <laughs> it, it explains so much. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so that's our discussion on love streams. It's I, it's really good. I think you should check it out. Uh, it may come up later again uh, on this very show. You never know. Um, we're going to listen to a little more Prince now. Um, we're really tempting the fates here because if we don't get in trouble with Prince for playing this song, uh, we're probably going to get in trouble with Tipper Gore. Um, in 1984, the story goes, Tipper Gore bought... Uh, the Purple Rain soundtrack for one of her kids. Uh, do they have multiple kids? They had multiple kids, right? The Gores? Yeah, they have two daughters, one of whom was a writer for Futurama. That's right. I think that might be her. Um, anyway, Tipper Gore heard this song here, Darling Nikki, and uh, was so offended that she uh, started the P PMRC, which uh, led to the uh, parental advisory warning on, on records um, and all that stuff, just because someone wanted to masturbate in a hotel lobby with a magazine. So here you go, darling Nikki, we're going to get into so much trouble. Uh, thanks, Nikki. It is now time for our uh, fake movie awards for the best of 1984. We should, should we have a name for these? The official George Sanders 1984 movie awards? I think we should include the word fake, though. Mm. Fake, mo fake movie Sanders. awards. Yeah, official George Sanders fake movie awards of 1984. Yeah, we'll have to think of an acronym for that. <laughs> uh, Where's our intern? <laughs> let's start with the uh, supporting category uh, supporting performance actor or actress 
who uh, who wins your fake award? Uh, well, there are a lot of great uh, performances this year, but uh, I'm actually going to go with one, uh, the first performance of, of, of an actor who we've all grown to love, uh, but the first film appearance of uh, Tim Roth, actually, in Stephen Freer's film The Hit, mm. um, which uh, I just caught up with. It is a very great um, little movie that just missed my top 10 um, about uh, Terrence Stamp, is a hitman who uh, kind of rats out his his you know crew and goes on the lam uh, and lives in in Spain and he gets caught by John Hurt and this kind of upstart young man played by Tim Roth uh, who's on his first kind of mission to bring uh, Terrence Stamp uh, to to the big boss man to you know kill him anyway uh, Tim Roth plays this kind of hot headed guy as I said young. Uh, kind of naive, um, but he plays the role in such a way that, you know, it's not just one note. It's not just that he's a hothead. It's not that he's just naive. You know, he he's he starts to see some humanity in this character, uh, the uh, Terrence Stamp's character, who initially is just this body he's trying to transport. Um, and it's a very Tim Roth role. He, he does get, you know... Uh, moments of being crazy which is which is a lot of fun so tim roth welcome to cinema the hit it's a good movie you should check it out yeah i i had a tough time with this one because there's a lot of really good supporting performances this year and so in supporting actor in particular is just a a, a really loaded category mm-hmm. but uh, uh streets of fire helped uh, helped clear it up for me because i give uh, bonus points for multiple performances and so i'm giving my my fake award to uh rick moranis Billy Fish. Yeah, a uh, a former George Sanders person of the week, if I remember correctly. I yeah, and actually during that uh, discussion, you said in regards to Ghostbusters, another nineteen eighty four film, that uh, you, you mentioned he might he might take the cake here. So I I am pleased to see that he yeah his 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 performance in Ghostbusters is is one of the the great comic performances of the decade, and and he steals. Steals the movie from from Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and and Bill Murray, which is uh, which is impressive. But uh, you you contrast that with his role in in Streets of Fire, which is just com- it's completely opposite. In, totally in, different in affect. In in Ghostbusters, he's like he's really nerdy. He's slumped over. He mumbles, uh, but he's really sweet and he's he's like a really nice kind of dumb guy. And in Streets of Fire, he's all puffed up, and he's a dick, and it's it's fantastic, and it's it's great range in these in these two performances, and they're both really good. So, so absolutely, yeah, he he he's my pick. Yeah, that's a great choice. He, the, it, day and night between those two performances. So, who's your pick for lead performance? Uh, you know, I had uh, someone that I picked a couple weeks ago and was was happy to go with, uh, and unfortunately, uh, I will talk about them because they're, they're fantastic. But uh, the award actually is going to go to Gina Rollins for uh, Love Streams. I think she's that good in this movie, um, and you know, I already talked about how amazing she is in the in the previous segment, so I won't dwell on that. But I'm going to talk briefly about my runner up here, Sally uh, Ye from uh, Shanghai Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, I have she, her in the supporting category. <laughs> see, it was kind of a toss, but you know, she's it's. I think it's three leads really in that movie. Yeah, um, it's a Choi Hark film, and uh, which we'll talk about later in the show. I guarantee it. But she plays the comic 
the real comic performance in this movie. Um, and she she's bewildered and she's excited about the big city and she's just a peach and she's great. And we'll talk about it later. I guarantee it. Uh, who's your pick for lead performance? Uh, I, again, this, this is a tough one, uh, in, including two performances on uh, four movies that we've talked about on the show before. Um, Robert De Niro, Once Upon a Time in America and Jeff Bridges from, from Starman. But, uh, and of course, you know, Cassavetes and Rollins were, were great as well. But, but I, I have to give the award to David Byrne for stop <laughs> yeah. making sense yeah uh which is a concert film but there there is nobody who who worked harder in 1984 than than david <laughs> byrne and you, you see every bead of sweat that went into that performance yeah and yeah. it it is he's he's electric yeah he uh, is. the the film the film I mean, it's a concert film. The film obviously would not work without him. And, uh, you know, it, it helps that the music is really good and that that uh, Jonathan Demme films it well and cuts it together well. But it, but it's David Byrne that that holds your attention the entire time. When, like when he's not on camera, you're you're like, where's David Byrne? What's David Byrne doing? Well, and you also should, you know, give him credit for, obviously, as a songwriter, but um, he also conceptualized the whole, you know, stage show for this. Yeah, you know, for yeah. and from, from like, the, the opening of the movie, where it's just him and the, uh, and the, uh, the little boombox on the empty stage. Like, like, it begins with him, and then the band fills in around him as the, the songs continue. Uh you know, from that to the the big giant suit to yeah, no yeah. one wears a big giant suit better than David Byrne. Yeah, it's <laughs> he's he's amazing. It's it's a remarkable performance. It really is. Uh, so, what about uh, screenplay? Uh, screenplay was tough. Uh, you know, there are a lot of really great screenplays uh, from this year. Um, you know, I disqualified one of them, uh, which will come up later for, for certain reasons, and I, I'll explain that when we get to it. Um, but yeah, there are some really strong, idiosyncratic, interesting films uh, written this year. Um, but I am going to go with, uh, we talked about him earlier on the show, and I'm going to pronounce his name right for Brian. It's Jim Jarmish uh, for <laughs> Stranger Than Paradise. Uh which is his first big feature. He uh, permanent vacation was prior to this, but this was the one that the kind of breakout film for him. And uh, like, kind of like Tim Roth with the supporting thing, um, it's kind, of, it's all there. You know, everything that makes him the artist that he is to this day uh, is in that movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a Jim Jarmish kind of world that he builds uh and he's he's such a uh unique and uh singular kind of talent and and it's all there in in that very very funny uh dry movie uh, stranger than paradise yeah that's that's my pick as well <laughs> uh, uh stranger than paradise has long been one of my my favorite movies it was like it was one of my the first like american indie films that i watched and it was the first movie of its type that I ever saw like a, a movie that that is you know for lack of a better word slow that takes its time that has like very little dialogue for long stretches and it, it's a movie that seems that seems like nothing is happening uh, but 
and you know, for long stretches of the film, actually nothing is happening. Like it, it, he'll just show uh, John Lurie and, and Esther Blunt like watching TV for a couple of minutes, and then cut to another scene where like one of them is vacuuming. And I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. And I don't. I'm certain that he was not the first one to make a movie like that. But it nonetheless uh, holds a kind of a primary position in in my memory. Absolutely. It's, and, and it holds up to this day too. You know, it, it re- like it really, you know, it can stand side by side with his later work and, and is just, just as strong. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still, it still might be my favorite Jarmusch film. I go, I go back and forth with dead man. Dead but, man's better, but yeah. But it's, <laughs> it, it's so funny and it's so weird and so kind of laid back and relaxed and it's got such a great rhythm to it and it it looks it looks great oh yeah that doesn't really have anything to do with the screenplay not, not the screenplay no no but, but but i put a spell on you probably does you could i mean you yeah i mean i could have given director to him you know it, it the you know i i went with somebody someone else for director and i had to give you know jarmish his due so that's you know he's getting screenplay and he better be happy with it <laughs> Okay, what about director? Uh, so, yeah, this is kind of the theme of the show, I guess, is is kind of um, first appearances or early appearances that that are just kind of statements of purpose. And that's n- there's no better example of that in 1984 than Blood Simple. Uh, the Coen brothers just come out fully formed in that idiosyncratic little noir that no one else could have possibly made like they did. And it's it's one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. I rewatched it um, earlier this year. It's I mean, you know, six, seven months ago or whatever. And every beat of that movie is just so well done. Um, and, you know, there's the, the, the newspaper hitting the door, uh, you know, that that jump scare that you get from that. There's the camera gliding down the length of the bar and going over the passed out drunk guy. Um, there's the hilarious uh, finale where, I mean, it's terrifying as well, but uh, of mistaken identity or, you know, no one knows exactly who is, who's who, what, who's chasing Francis McDormand. Uh, you know, she thinks it's someone else, but it's M.M. at Walsh, who's amazing. And it's just, a perfect, perfect movie, and I, Cohen's had had to take it. So, yeah. My favorite thing about Blood Simple is when uh, the guy uh, has just killed or buried Dan Hedaya, and he thinks, and uh, he's driving along at, at dawn down yeah. the, down the highway, yeah. and a, a pickup uh, passes him going the other direction, and you get like a, a shot of close up of the driver as he like points and winks at the guy, and yep. it, it it comes and goes in a flash. And and the first time I saw that, I had to like rewind the videotape like three or four times. I couldn't believe that I had just seen that. It was so funny and so it's weird. So it's such a Coen Brothers moment. I mean, yeah. that is like the quintessential Coen Brothers moment. So perfect. Yeah. Such a great movie. Yeah, it's terrific. Uh, my my best director is is uh, Troy Hawk for for Shanghai Blues. Great pick. Yeah, which uh, it's it's a movie that that I watched twice this year. Uh, I wrote about it 
twice as well. Uh, uh, it sounds like you really liked it as well, so I'm I'm very excited about that. But it's it's not one of his better known movies. It's, it's harder to find, even uh, you know on DVD. Uh, it is out there on YouTube in a really good quality, and uh, it's kind of it's not his first great movie, but it's like his first like total Choi Hark film, like where where all of the parts of of what make him a great director are kind of put together for the first time in like a really entertaining, fun package. So in, in that sense, I would say it's like, it's his first great movie. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm not nearly, you know, I'm just dipping my toes in the water uh, here. I just saw his latest film, which premiered two days ago <laughs> uh, in China uh, and I've seen this and, and and nothing really in between but I am foaming at the mouth just to see more on the strength of of Shanghai Blues alone because that's just oh it's a perfect movie and it it will be discussed yeah like we I, I don't think we didn't we didn't talk about it last uh, last episode because because I knew we were going to talk about Shanghai Blues this on this one but uh, I spent I spent more uh, more time in in 2014 watching Choi Hark films than than anyone else, and I had already seen a bunch coming into this year. Like there's just there's so many of them that, uh, and I still have a bunch to see, <laughs> including the new one. He's just he's just a massive massive figure. Yeah. All right, so let's get to uh, the countdown now. So, yeah, top ten time. Yeah, let's uh, let's hit me with your ten through six. Yeah. Okay. So very quickly, my ten through six, and we'll dive more in depth with the with the uh, five through number one. Uh, number ten, Love Streams. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a John Cassavetes movie. Pretty good. No, uh, I, don't, I don't know it at all. Yeah, I didn't think so. Kind of obscure. Uh, number nine, Repo Man. Uh, Alex Cox's uh, only great movie uh <laughs> which but it's a really great movie um number eight is nasuka of the valley of the wind uh hayao miyazaki's uh epic you know first feature it's or, well not really first feature that's not true but uh kind of set him off on his path of, it's got it's kind of his first miyazaki feature. his first miyazaki one yeah uh, number seven is Streetwise, the documentary about a homeless youth in Seattle that is just devastating uh, and and just as relevant today uh, as it was back in 1984. Uh, and number six is a movie we just mentioned, Stranger Than Paradise, uh, from Jim Jarmusch. Uh, what's your number uh, uh, ten through six, Sean? Streetwise of those is, is one that I haven't seen. Oh, it's so good. I mean, it's hard. It's another one that's really hard to find. Um, I, I think it's never been released on DVD as far as I know. I found it on the internet um, and it just broke my heart. And, you know, it, it, it hits me personally in a way because I, um, my, it, at work, I deal with a lot of uh, homeless youth. people. Yeah. I, well, I deal with that in particular uh, youth, you know, that are, right. um, you know, been kicked out of their homes for a number of reasons or have, have decided to leave for a number of reasons. And um, it's 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 just devastating to see how little has changed in the last 30 years. And, and the same issues are still, you know, causing grief and and stuff. And, and these kids are just looking for some kind of surrogate family. And it's just it's heartbreaking. Um, and on top of that, it's from it's filmed in Seattle, and so there's like that added layer to it too. Like if it was sure. if it was Atlanta or something, that'd be one thing. But it's like Seattle. I mean, it feels like uh, it it's 
happening right outside my door. So it's totally amazing and you should check it out. But uh, what's your number 10, John? I've, I've changed these orders around so many times. There's like, you know, 20 movies that I could put in the, <laughs> in the top 20. It's just... Uh, I, I in, in, nice. in, in any order within the top 20. It's that, just that's, it's a mess. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at my like, yeah, my 20 through uh, 11 or whatever, and it's like, you know, Eric Romero's on there, mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in America, Werner Herzog's Where the Green Ants Stream. I mean, it's just, there's so much. Yeah, yeah this is, uh, this is really hard to do because there's so many great movies, and I'm sure if you ask me in two weeks, I will have a, a completely different top 10, but, but as of right now, this moment on December 26th, uh, my number 10 is uh, Starman the John Carpenter film, which we talked about uh, earlier this year on mm-hmm. the uh, Under the Skin episode. Uh, number nine is This is Spinal Tap. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, Mike, but it's about a uh, a really bad heavy metal band. Uh, no, I've seen I've seen a film with, I think it's a similar title, but the it's about a really good heavy metal band. Oh, okay, yeah. This is a different movie then. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, my number eight is Ghostbusters, which the last time I saw it was about five years ago, and I was pretty certain it was the perfect comedy. And I don't know if it is, if that is still the case. I did not, uh, watch it again. Uh, but, uh. Yeah, that's why it's as low as it is. <laughs> uh, number seven is is Stop Making Sense, which which we talked about the the Jonathan Demme Talking Heads concert film, which is is really phenomenal. And number six is Lau Kar Lung's Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which uh, I actually talked about last year on uh, the Lau Kar Lung episode of They Shot Pictures podcast. Uh, it's kind of like The Searchers, but with kung fu, and it's really dark and violent and awesome. Yes, it is. Uh, speaking to uh, Ghostbusters, um, I am is not a big fan of Ghostbusters in terms of like the eighties. I mean, I, I, it's good. It's really good. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's 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 number eighteen on my list. Um, where it doesn't. Where is there other eighties comedies that just I think hit it every single time, all the way through? Um, Ghostbusters leaves me a little little flat and i know i'm in the minority on that but um, ghostbusters, ghostbusters movie i saw in 1984 when i was eight years old and thought it was hilarious and it was something we we always had on video and would just watch over and over again it's like it's one of the movies i've seen more than any anything else it's like it's like star wars and indiana jones level oh, of free watching sure. for that so I, I like i know that movie inside and out and yeah i i, I can't imagine I, I can't understand the world without Ghostbusters in it. I understand. And like I said, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, publish, I have a letterbox list of all 49 movies that I've seen from 84. And uh, I think New Year's Eve, when everybody else is doing their like 2014 ones, I'll, I'll publish this finally um, so people can yell at me for putting, you know, um, Splash Solo or something like that. So, yeah, you can you can see all that when we get to that point and, and yell at me about Ghostbusters too. I, I have, uh, I have 115 such lists on my blog. <laughs> I know you do. 
Uh, okay, so let's do the uh, the let's five. Let's do the big, one. the top what, five. What is your number five? Cream of the crop. Number five is Shanghai Blues, uh, the Choi Hark film that I just saw like uh, last week. Um, it's uh, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, Post war um, Shanghai. There's the the romantic comedy trope of of two people who were you know made a a pact to meet again once the war was over um madly in love with each other but they never saw each other's faces and then uh you know flash forward to after the war and they end up living above you know in the same apartment building um from one another but they don't realize it and then on top of that as i mentioned uh when we were talking about uh performance um you throw in the third wheel, uh, Sally Ye, who's just a, a doll, just so, super funny. And it's a comedy of errors. It's totally melodramatic, beautiful looking. Uh, it's it's everything you could possibly want in a movie. I mean, really. It, it is, the only thing that's not in, in Shanghai Blues is Amy Acker. I mean, that's that's it. I mean, it's the only thing that's not that I would want in a movie that's not in this movie. And uh, it's just, I mean, Amy Acker would probably be an infant or something. I don't know how old she is, but uh, when they made this movie. But anyway, it's great. That's my number five. What's your yeah, number five? My, my number five is Gremlins, the uh, Joe Dante film about uh, uh, a Christmas present gone horribly wrong, which is just, it's just, you know, anarchic movie love in the best Joe Dante way, the way that only Joe Dante can do. He's like the Spielberg if if Spielberg had continued to to be quirky. Uh, I don't know. Joe Dante was my runner up for best director. He he really was um, because Gremlins is such such a finely crafted bit of mayhem i mean it, yeah it's, it's just bonkers it's uh, it's it's kind of it's like it's classical slapstick in its simplicity like it, you have the simple premise with these rules that the the gremlins have and then of course they're all going to to be violated and just the increasing escalation of the mayhem that the gremlins create is is like laurel and hardy like when we talked about with uh with sons in the desert the way you start simple and just build and build and build to where you have just complete anarchy on screen and that is the way the gremlins works and plus, it has Phoebe Cates's uh, Santa Claus speech. Yeah, Chris Columbus, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, uh, you know he should he should get a star on the Walk of Fame if he doesn't already just for that speech alone. I'm sure he's he's got one. That's true. Yeah, but he should get it specifically for that. Yeah. <laughs> what's your What's your number four? Uh, my number four is your number seven or eight. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, eight diagram pole fighter. Um, my number six. Number six. Number six. Just missed the cut there for top five. Uh, yeah, Lao Kar Lung's uh, just mythical kung fu movie um, that kicks all sorts of ass left and right. I mean, it 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 starts off seven brothers. Five of them are are, are ambush. Well, they're all ambushed, but five of them die. One of the one of the survivors goes crazy. The other one goes off to become a monk and uh, and you know exact revenge at, some, at a certain point. And it is just jaw dropping in its action elements. It's it's 
it's like you said, it's like it's a western. It's like the searchers. Um, it's got just such great stuff going on uh, through the whole thing. I mean, I, I, it's one of those movies where you see the finale of it with like the coffins and and just the crazy fights, and you are cackling because it's so well done, so beautifully choreographed, so almost it feels effortless, but you know how much work is put into it. It is just a supreme entertainment, and just uh, I just it's the bee's knees. I love it. Yeah, it has it has such momentum. Like uh, it some, does. A, it's a relentless. Lot, a lot of these kung fu films can feel kind of digressive, but but a dragon Ground pole fighter has like it is it is obsessed with its with its uh, with its forward movement. Like uh, uh, Gordon Liu as the link, as the the lead character is just is so bent on revenge, and every step of the movie is just getting him closer and closer to to taking that and and. You know, trying trying to kind of regain his his sanity so that he can actually exact that revenge. And I guess there there are there are bits that don't come together with uh, with Alexander Fusheng's character. He's the brother that goes crazy um, because because Fusheng died in a car accident while they were filming, so they they couldn't really like complete his character arc. But even that feels it doesn't matter. It, it it makes the movie stronger even because there's there's such a sense of even though they get their revenge there's no there's no resolution to the movie there's no there's no enlightenment in the way that you would get with like 36 chamber of shaolin it's just it just leaves this blank open space where there's just violence it's really good <laughs> it's really it's really good i mean it it's it's just so propulsive and just amazing. And Gordon Liu, I mean, he rocks it. Yeah. And 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 the th- then the thing, as you said, it's it's so relentless in, in in its its quest for revenge. But then the revenge comes, and the payoff is so good. Like you know, you can like it's hard to build momentum, and then actually have it stick the landing. A diagram pole fighter sticks the landing. Yeah. What's your number four? Uh, my number four is a movie that was completely new to me that I, I don't think I'd even heard of prior to this. It is uh, Choose Me by Alan Rudolph, which is hard to describe. It's kind, <laughs> it's kind of a screwball comedy. It's a mistaken identity film. Uh, it's got a, a love triangle, sort of. It's got these these three characters played by uh, Keith Carradine, Leslie Ann Warren, and Genevieve Bujold, who just kind of circle and, and dance around each other and, and interact with each other in such a, an offbeat, unusual way that it was... I was just completely under the spell of this movie. It was just kind of rapturous, the effect that it had on me. And uh, you you watched it, and you didn't like it as much as me. I did, I was pretty shocked about how much. I mean, it's good. I I you know it's it's fine. Uh, I was a little shocked uh, by how much you responded to to choose me. Um, it's it's definitely it's good. It ha- it's very unique movie, which I, I think is great, and there are elements that are, of it that work. Um, but. You know, the, you, you mentioned like screwball comedy or romantic comedy kind of thing. The humor didn't work for me so well in this. Um, although John Larroquette riding a motorcycle totally mm-hmm. rules. Um, I love, 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 loved 
Radon Chong's uh, apartment, though. That that to me, if we were giving out uh, you know set design award or something like that, that would win. Uh, her apartment has movie posters, all of which are are commenting on the on film the, on the movie. It's great, and they're real movies. Like the the yeah. title, you know, there's all about Eve, and one of the characters' name is Eve in this movie or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it's great. I mean, it's hilarious. That that part's that part is where it pays off. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was it's good. It um, but yeah, I was a little amazed at how bowled over by it you were. But sometimes you just get on a wavelength with a movie, and that, that's great. And I really want to see Trouble in Mind, um, which has been on my watch list for a while. Which is the same director. Um, have yeah, you seen that one? It's it's from the next year. I, I rented it, but I did not watch it. Okay. And I actually yeah. think that's the second time that I've rented that and and not watched it. But uh, you know, there's there's this kind of strain of of movies in the mid eighties with just slightly offbeat rhythms that didn't really work with audiences and ended up driving these these directors who who started out in the seventies. Uh, out of the business, like like Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart and and The Cotton Club, and I think I think uh, Choose Me is in this vein as well. Like you just you you can't make movies this weird for a mainstream audience, and uh, I think you you still see these kinds of movies. Like Hal Hartley was was something that Choose Me really reminded me of, but those are like micro budget independent sure. films, and I think. Uh, I think uh, I think choose me. I think Strange in the Paradise is is similarly weird, although in a different way that was you know that also never caught on in the mainstream. Right. Yeah, but I feel like yeah, I feel like Strange in the Paradise uh, at the time differentiated itself. Even you know it stood it stood on its own you know aside outside of that kind of box and that's yeah. why yeah Cop- Coppola a- Coppola and Rudolph and and De Palma also uh, um, Body Double is a movie that didn't make my my top five but it's also a really great nineteen eighty four film uh, it's they, okay. they're working with like traditional Hollywood genres and Hollywood formulas whereas Jarmish is uh, is much less connected to that Hollywood tradition. He's, he's of a, a later generation. Right. Uh, and he also, if I'm not mistaken, um, he's, he's fiercely, uh, independent and, and, and his stipulation for all of his movies is that he actually retains the rights to all of them. Um, yeah. Which is, I mean, you, you couldn't imagine Jim Jarmusch like starting his own studio like Coppola did. Right. Absolutely not. um but anyway no choose me it's 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 definitely worth a watch um i i watched it on the strength of your review so and i'm glad i did so you know it's not um it's not a misfire by any stretch of the imagination cool what what is your number three uh my number three is gremlins uh joe dante's film uh i love gremlins i just got it for christmas on blu-ray uh i'm itching to watch it again um it's my favorite Joe Dante movie. I love the sequel. Uh, the sequel is is, is is ten times more insane, which if you've only just seen the first Gremlins, you can't even imagine what that means, but it's true. Um, and I love Joe Dante. I love his stuff. But Gremlins to me is the perfect kind of uh, encapsulation of all that. It all comes together in Gremlins. It, it, it's, it's, it's firing in all cylinders. There's that Chris Columbus script, which we talked about, which is really weird filtering this kind of small town 
um, nostalgia through this really warped kind of lens. Um, you've got these great set pieces culminating with the gremlins uh, singing along to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in a movie theater, which speaks to me on a primal level. Uh, <laughs> it's Gremlins is just great, and uh, it I you know I just watched Die Hard on on Christmas, and Die Hard is the perfect Christmas movie. But if Die Hard didn't exist, uh, Gremlins would probably take its place. It's it's so amazing. I I, I watched Die Hard not too long ago. I, I would put Gremlins ahead of it as a Christmas movie. Well, I mean, to be fair, Die Hard is a Christmas Eve movie, so we can oh, well, split the go. difference. Okay. <laughs> What's your number three, Sean? Uh, Stranger Than Paradise, ah. which we've we've talked about at length. It's it's a movie I loved. It's it had been in the kind of default number one spot on my 1984 list uh, ever since I, I first made a list of my favorite movies in 1984 years and years ago. And I, I had never moved it until, you know, kind of reconsidering it and, and, and going over this for this year. And I'm moving it down to number three. Oof. But it's also, it's, it's also one that I didn't rewatch. So... Yeah, it's one that it's I had a few seen years. Yeah, a lot of actually 84 movies that I've seen... Um, and I and I really like like Stranger Than Paradise or Amadeus um, stuff like that that I wanted to get to I just couldn't because I was trying to get to all this new stuff for me you know um, yeah. and even stuff like uh, the Natural or Karate Kid and stuff that um, you know I I saw as a kid and I don't know what I would think of them now <laughs> you know I didn't get to those uh, again either the Karate so. the Karate Kid is really good I have the Karate Kid ranked higher than Love Streams. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean it's it's on my list. It, it's 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 in a it's you know, it's a decent ranking on there. Uh it's not above Bachelor Party, which totally rules, but you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh my number two pick is a film we also talked about earlier. Uh it is Blood Simple. Um I think it's as I said then, it's 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 the Cohen's coming out swinging. Um I I wrote about it when I saw it earlier this year. Um, t- I wrote about it on my blog. Was it this year or last year? Anyway, oh, it was leading up to Inside Lewin Davis is when I watched it. Mm. Um, and the movie's really interesting. I, I you know, it's kind of this neo-noir, but it's also the Coen Brothers version of a horror movie, um, which, as I mentioned, there's the jump scare of the newspaper. Um, there's the way they filmed the final confrontation um, with Francis McDormand in this loft with these big windows um, and a killer coming for her. Um, that is really terrifying. Um, yeah, there's the the great shot of, of she's like cowering behind a wall and he's firing through the wall and she's in a dark room. So you see these shafts of light coming through the bullet through. holes in the wall. Yeah. It, and yeah, I, I really, I think I ranked Coen Brothers movies um, around that same time. And I think Blood Simple is like my number three. Like it, it's one of those movies that I, if you ask me, if we talk about the Coen Brothers, I jump to my favorites, you know, The Man Who Wasn't There, Serious Man and stuff. Um, and, and, I, and Blood Simple doesn't come to mind as readily, but every time I see it, I'm amazed at how perfect it is. And it's just... And I mean, it's the Coen Brothers. I love almost everything they've ever done, and to put this that high is is a testament to how great it is. I I think it's wonderful. 
It's okay. It's, it's great. It's not one so, of my favorite Coens. It's it's, it's good. It's good. I have it uh, ranked number thirty-two. Oh my god! Right around uh, uh, Leo's Carex's Boy Meets Girl and Woody Allen's Broadway Danny Rose. Oh, that's interesting. Wait, uh, Broadway Danny Rose is my thirty-one. That's uh, yeah. Scream for Help is my number thirty-two. Which, brief aside, uh, Matt Lynch from Scarecrow is a huge uh, cheerleader for Scream for Help, and uh, I don't know if you caught up with that. I, movie. I did not see that one. That movie is fucked up. Like it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I really it's on YouTube. Uh, if if you if you want to see a really fucked up kind of coming of age, like sexual awakening slash home invasion slash slasher movie, uh, Scream for Help is pretty bitching. Like I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it, it, but it's, it's who it's a, it's an interesting movie. Uh, anyway, what's your number two, Sean? Shanghai blues. Ah, uh, Shanghai. Blues. Which, which we've talked about at length. It's, it's a, it's a great movie. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't have anything new to say about it. Uh, other than to, to point you to the, the very long review I wrote a few months ago. For it. We'll link to it in the notes for this show. Yes, we will. So, we'll what do, we'll what do is the same with my blood simple? Ruby. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what is your pick as the number one best film of 1984? Uh, you know, so I started out the year with I don't know. I probably had maybe I don't know 20 movies uh, on my list of 84 before I started like really diving in and watching all these, this other like half, these other 20 or 30 that I just watched. Um, and I was totally open to moving things around, you know, I was totally opening, open for something, you know, taking this top spot, but the entire time from beginning to end, it it stayed there. Um, and nothing's budging it at this point. Uh, this is spinal tap is the best movie of 1984. Uh, this is Spinal Tap is the funniest movie ever made that does not star someone with the last name Marks. I mean, it is, it is, I grew up, you know, I, I, I played in bands for, you know, a decade and a half of my life. And, um, and this Spinal Tap is the blueprint, like for everything. It's the blueprint for everything. The songs uh, you can call them a terrible heavy metal band, but I listen to the soundtrack for This Is Spinal Tap more than I listen to uh, Stop Making Sense. Um, <laughs> I, I think the songs are you know, bad in just the perfect way. Uh, they're so funny. So goddamn funny. Um, and I, w- I wanted to give Spinal Tap the screenplay award, uh, but it's not a screenplay. It, you know, it was all improvised. You know, they made up the backstories for these characters and stuff. But um, every time I, there's there's I can't think of another movie that every time I watch it, I I laugh at something I haven't laughed at before. And, and that is this is Spinal Tap. You know, there was a period where. The first several times, the first 20 times I watched This is Spinal Tap, I latched on to Christopher Guest's character, Nigel Tufnell, who also, by the way, runner-up for uh, Best Performance of the Year. Um, But then I got into this phase, you know, after seeing it like 25 times, uh, where Derek Smalls, uh, anything that Harry Shearer says in this movie, the first few times you watch this movie... It doesn't make as much of an impact because his, the things he says are like more low key. Um, they're not as you know. It's not like this goes to eleven or whatever. Um, but god damn it, if Harry Shearer does not 
own this motherfucker. Um, and Michael McKean and uh, I mean, everybody is at their top in this movie. Uh, Fran Drescher, Paul Schaefer, everybody down the line. Call, I mean, Rob Reiner, who directed it as well and, and plays Marty DeBerge. Uh, it is the funniest fucking movie ever, except for Duck Soup. I love This is Spinal Tap. I rest my case. <laughs> I prefer Princess Bride. You're wrong. <laughs> I mean, you're wrong. That's fine. You can prefer it, but you're wrong. It's this. It's, Spinal Tap is so... So on the DVD that came out like 15 years ago, the, the Studio Canal one or whatever that came out, there's a bonus hour and a half of outtakes that are cut into like another movie and it's got all the subplots that didn't make it in the movie that is astounding and hilarious and and so amazing um i mean it, it was just gold it like the stars were aligned for this is spinal tap and i love the princess bride don't get me wrong i do i think it's great but this is spinal tap i i just it, anytime i think of it i start laughing like i start laughing out loud like in in the most the the worst place to start laughing out loud but I'll, you know the line from big bottom will come in my head how could i leave this behind and i think of that and i think like that is the dumbest thing you could possibly and it and it's so smart that they thought of the dumbest thing and it makes me i'll walk my dog and i'll be walking by like a uh, i don't know like a, a church or something and that line will come in my head god knows why and i would just start having a giggle fit it's that great uh, and clearly it's your number one as well, Sean. Well, as as we discussed, it was my number nine. Right, but also your number one, right, Sean? No. My number one is a film that we have not yet mentioned, and it is Sammo Hung's Wheels on Meals, starring Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and Wen Biao. It's not as good as this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this movie is uh, is kind of the... This movie, in in the way that that Spinal Tap is the perfect uh, comedy or fake documentary, if you will, Wheels on Meals is the perfect uh, action comedy film. It is the kind of culmination of a trend that that Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan had been uh, instrumental in for the previous decade of of inserting comedy into into kung fu films. Uh, it is uh, it marks the the point where uh, period kung fu films were replaced by present day ones. Uh, it is the best work that the three of them, uh, these three guys who had grown up together in a Peking opera troupe, it is their best work as a trio. It's got some of the best fights of their careers, uh, especially uh, uh, the the final fight between uh, between Jackie Chan and uh, the kickboxing champion Benny the Jet Urquidez. Uh, is phenomenal in all of the best Jackie Chan ways, which basically mean it's it's acrobatic. It uses props really well, and it involves a man doing his best to get the shit kicked out of himself. <laughs> uh, and it's also it's visually inventive in the way that kung fu films rarely are. There are there are jokes in this movie that are worthy of a Buster Keaton film. Uh, it's it's sly in its humor. There's uh, an apparent uh, game going on on set on who can wear the most ridiculous hat 
or just how bizarre an outfit you could get Yuan Biao to wear. There's uh, director uh, Wu Ma coming on screen pretending that he is a clock. <laughs> this movie is insane. It's about it's about these three guys, all all expatriates, uh, Cantonese in Barcelona, a Barcelona wherein everyone speaks Cantonese. Uh, Jackie and and Wen run a food truck, and Samo is a wannabe private detective. And the three of them become mixed up in this case of a uh, of a woman who is due an inheritance, but is kidnapped by her evil stepbrother, who holds her in his castle. And so the three of them basically become the three musketeers and rescue the princess. It's 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 perfect. It's a good movie. I I I saw Wheels on Meals. I I know you're a big fan, uh, and I I did really enjoy it. It, it it's uh, it is a really fun movie. I'd like to see it again. Um, and obviously, I haven't seen that many of the Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung movies. Uh, we talked about the victim uh, on last year's uh, show. The show where we do new yeah, to the, us movies. the discoveries episode. Yeah, the first the first part of our year end uh, episode, spectacular stuff, um, which I think is a better movie. Uh, obviously, it's different. It's it's not Jackie Chan's not in that one and stuff. Um, I the, I responded to that movie so well that I think I was a little. The victim is really good. It's not it's not nearly as polished or as as visually inventive. It's got a really clever plot tri- twist. And and it's it's got some great fights, but but Beardy is not merely the presence that that Jackie Chan and and Wen Biao are. Yeah, but Sam Hung turns up as Dracula at some point, so I think it's a wash. I yeah. think it's a wash. Yeah. Uh, no. Wheels on Meals is great. My favorite thing about Wheels on Meals is is I. Uh, is that the reason it's called Wheels on Meals is that they'd released, was it like two or three movies prior to it that started with the letter M? Yeah. And, and they failed at the box office. And so the movie that they were making called Meals on Wheels, they were like, oh, I don't want this to fail. So, you know, superstitiously, let's change it around to Wheels on Meals. And it was a huge hit. <laughs> yep. uh, and that kind of pretty much sums up that movie in a nutshell. It's a great pick. I, I, I don't, you know, uh, begrudge you that pick at all. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, a movie that didn't make the cut in any of our awards. Uh, well, it made it, it made it in your, your supporting actor award, but it didn't make our top ten or anything, um, is the next film we're going to talk about uh, on the show. It's Streets of Fire um, from director Walter Hill. And uh, let's take a break and hear a little clip from that. You guys were schoolmates? Well, we, 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 don't, we, we, we're not university material. What's that on your finger? Bring you back. 
If she's if 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 she's not on the 519, then I'm gonna know what sorrow means, and I'm gonna cry, cry, cry all the way home, all the way home, all the way home, all the way home, all the way home. Cry, 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 all the way home. Fairly simple. It's about six six words in the whole song. Sounds like a beat them over and over again. Let's talk about your music today. One thing that puzzles me. Is the makeup of your audience seems to be predominantly young boys? Well, it's a sexual thing, really. Aside from the identifying that the boys do with us, there's also like a reaction to the female of the female to our music. They're really they're quite fearful. Yeah, that's my theory. They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got you know armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening the size. Yeah, and and they. They run screaming. So when we were when we were talking about uh, uh, Choose Me, we were talking about uh, odd films of 1984 by by directors who had kind of uh, made a name for themselves in the 1970s and then kind of went off to strange places by the mid 1980s and ended up kind of wrecking their careers. And and I think that that Streets of Fire is another excellent example of that. It's. Uh, by director uh, Walter Hill, who had had a big hit a couple of years earlier with 48 Hours. Uh, he's kind of revisiting the, the uh, pseudo-mythic urban gang world of his 1979 film, The Warriors, uh, with a rock musical about a gang that, is, uh, that kidnaps a woman rock singer from a club and then her ex-boyfriend has to go rescue her so there's a little bit of of homer uh like the iliad in there and there's also a little bit of uh of escape from new york and it's a little crazy and it's so much fun i (laughs) i i really loved it it uh it it's uh Placed much higher than Love Streams on my list. Ooh, yeah. Um, about ten. I agree. Ten, about it's, ten. It's a, about ten spots higher. Uh, I agree. It's. I think it's uh, really great um, for most of it. Um, a, a, a huge chunk. I have. I take issue with certain parts of it, um, which we'll get to. Um, it's um, my favorite Walter Hill movie. Um, and, and I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. Um, I like the Warriors just fine. I'm not one of those like cult of the Warriors kind of people where I'm like the Warriors, you know. I've um, I've only seen it once, but I I really liked the Warriors. It's really good. Don't get me wrong. It's really good. There's some really strong stuff. I particularly really like um, as Don comes up uh, in the like the last like 20 minutes of that movie. I think there's some really strong stuff. Um, uh, the Long Riders, I think, is really good. I, it's a fun uh, western that he did um, in between these two movies. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's uh, it's really interesting. Um, I, ha- I haven't seen there. that one. I haven't seen Southern Comfort. I, I wanted to to get to both of those, but I didn't. Uh, I saw The Driver a while ago. That's that's a really interesting movie. That's a good stuff. Yeah. So I I like Walter Hill. So I, that, I'm just putting that there. And and I think Streets of Fire is my favorite movie of his um, that I've seen. Um, I speaking of you know awards that we did not give out, um, and I, I mentioned Ray Don Chong's apartment uh, from Choose Me, and I would give like a set design award. I would give an overall production design award to Streets of Fire. Like 
I love the world that this movie exists in. It is like a, it's like the fifties, like, but filtered through an eighties music video. Like all the cars are from like the fifties and people are wearing like poodle skirts and stuff. And, um, but yeah, then it's, the, it's really, it, it really creates an alien sense to the world. It is really fascinating. Cause and and there's there there are just a few tiny things that that make you think it's not the fifties, you know, uh, an abundance of abstract neon, for example, um, which which comes up in like a club scene. Uh, the music, obviously, that Diane Lane's uh, band plays, um, but weirdly, not all of the music in the film. True, but but their but their act alone is. Uh, is clearly an 80s. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very much uh, a Bonnie Tyler kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so the, the, the environment of this thing, and I love, you know, uh, there's the elevated train tracks uh, for like the, uh, you know, subway or whatever that are uh, in every outdoor shot. Like the whole movie takes place like under these tracks for the most part. Um, yeah, and I just think it, it's it's, a, it's an urban wasteland of of the kind that you see a lot in the 1980s as kind of corollaries for the the disintegration of New York in the in the 70s as the the 60s moved into to the 80s and you get there's a lot of movies like this not just Escape from New York and and this but uh, now I can't think of any others. <laughs> But the the Warriors, of course, is Absolutely. is another example of that. But you know, even, yeah. and even you know, Ghostbusters, in a sense, is like the flip side of that because in in the Ghostbusters movie, it's like the the city uniting, uh, whereas this is just it's it, unification is just impossible. It's yeah. just the 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 urban center is just disintegrated into into prehistoric gang violence. Yeah, it's like Lord of the Flies with like leather jackets and uh, Will Willem Dafoe like as some sort of like vampire biker dude <laughs> called Raven. Is he called? He's called Raven, right? Yeah, and and Willem Dafoe is he is so good. the The great thing about Willem Dafoe is that he's always Willem Dafoe, and he's always just weird and creepy and scary in a way that he shouldn't be because he's so scrawny. Yeah, but oh gosh, he's he's his face like he's so um he, 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 his skin is so like alabaster white like it's I, like oh, it's a I, it, I mean it's it, that's why I say vampire. He looks like all the blood has been drained from his body. I, I know of no other actor who can be as menacing wearing overalls made <laughs> out of a hefty bag. <laughs> I know. I know. That outfit is choice. I mean, that was just that was really great. Um, so anyway, yeah. So this movie exists in this world. There's this war. Um, you know, there, there's kind of the no man's land where uh, their biker gang. What they called the bombers. Yeah, um, the bombers in in battery, not in not, battery. not the yeah. battery. Right. Which just is battery. an actual location right. in New York. Yeah, just battery. Battery. Um, and they kind of overrun this kind of warehouse district, and and it's like a lawless land or whatever. Um, and yeah, and and. And like you said, the first I don't know hour of this is like the Warriors. It's it takes place all at night, trying to get from one part of the city to the other. Um, yeah, the the escape back after they've rescued 
and Diane Lane is very reminiscent of, of the Warriors because they have to make it through various, uh, it's just one gang, but they have to make it a very long way across the city. Like it takes hours to traverse the city. This, yeah. It would, that, and that's another thing I like about this movie is the city is, is the fictional city of this movie has got to be like a hundred miles wide. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like it's taking them so long um, like it's it's clear that time is passing as they're driving, you know, first a stolen car and then a, and a bus when they pick up or they don't pick up. They kind of commandeer the bus of this kind of doo-wop uh, acapella vocal group. Um, yeah, the, the way the group kept expanding on the journey uh, reminded me of uh, the outlaw Josie Wales. Mm. Where you where you similarly have this this kind of misanthropic hero who is is forced into this role where he has to play the hero and then people who can't protect themselves end up latching on to him as he leads them, you know, through the wilderness. Yeah. I kind of like I, my favorite person that, uh, ends up with them is, uh, is like a, uh, a groupie for Diane Lane's band who just sees them on the street and like, I love you. I'm coming with you. And then she doesn't do anything like for the, like she's just there in the background, but she has like really no purpose whatsoever for the rest of the movie. Um, and I, I actually kind of enjoyed that. Yeah. I like the, uh, I like the duo group with, uh, Michael T Williams and Williamson and, uh, uh, Robert Townsend. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's great. Weird, weirdly, as as people with like no lines, but they're just there. <laughs> well, and their song that they sing on the bus is the best song in the movie, the best performance in the movie, uh, music wise, in my opinion. Uh, the music yeah. uh, is is orchestrated by uh, Ry Cooter, um, who uh, I respect for certain things, and he annoys the hell out of me in other ways. And the music in this movie kind of falls on that divide. <laughs> there are things I really like about it. Um, and then there's, then there are songs that I'm like, the, okay, my biggest problem with this movie is the finale. Uh, we'll just jump ahead here. Okay. It, uh, the, the movie kind of, it kind of peters to an end because there's this performance at the end. That's supposed to be this very triumphant thing, but the song is terrible and it goes on for like, 10 minutes and you just you you want closure to the thing and you can't get it because you have to watch this terrible like excessive 80s performance that i just could not get into on the flip side i really actually like diane lane's band's performance at the beginning of the movie that she is a great performer i still haven't seen ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains which she also is a you know like a punk singer in that one or i don't i don't think she actually does her own singing in this i, I was watching the credits and it, it looked to me like there were other performers there well what i meant is uh her uh stage presence okay yeah like she comes out and she's like dancing and she's grabbing the mic and she's like she's electric on 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 this stage like you can see her as this um rock star that she is the the, um, the 80s never looked as good as diane lane looks in this movie <laughs> i'll say that you can say that again yeah. um but yeah i think the i think the the music undercuts the the finale of the movie at least uh it, it where it doesn't work for me um i don't think it's it's probably not in my top five soundtracks of of 1984 but but i like the music i like i like bonnie tyler i like the the kind of overblown melodrama of it it kind of i i wish i was stevie nicks but i'm not even you know the <laughs> 
I'm not even the the total eclipse of the heart singer. Uh, I do. I will say, uh, I I actually thought the drummer for her band was really cool. That guy, that guy was he was bringing the chops to to those songs. I like that uh, both both songs open with him just in the spotlight alone. Hell yeah, drumming. Bring as, it up. as all songs should. That's right. All songs should end that way too. Um, yeah. So yeah, it splits the difference. You know, I think some of the songs like the doo-wop song and, you know, there's a version of uh, Link Ray's Rumble that plays uh, when the, the two gang, when uh, the two leaders of these gangs are, you know, uh, I guess Tom Cody isn't the leader of a gang, but, you know, when they finally clash, there's this kind of cool version of Rumble, um, although the original's better. Um, and the, that, that the only to... the only song I recognized was was I can dream about you, which is a song that that I have liked for thirty years. And and as we mentioned uh, earlier um, in the show, the performances almost across the board are fantastic. Uh, and and the casting, Rick Moranis, as we said, as Billy Fish, which by the way is a Melvin's song title, uh, mm. is, is great. He's, he's wonderful. Uh, Willem Dafoe's great, but these people that crop up and appear in just like one scene or two scenes, Bill Paxton as the bartender. One of the, the all time great Bill Paxton entrances. He, oh my gosh. It's, it's, he's like Bill Paxton right there. Boom. With amazing right hair and like a blacked out tooth. It's, it's phenomenal. It is, it's like Herb Paxton. It's so good. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Ed Bagley Jr., who shows up for one one little tiny scene, um, and he's like covered in soot, and he's kind of like the gatekeeper to the battery district or whatever. And he uh, has choice words with uh, with Rick Moranis' Billy Fish. He calls him a shithead, um, and I was like, "What? Eddie Bagels is in this? That's awesome!" And so you know, all these people kind of crop up. Um, what, what did you think of Michael Pere as, as the lead? He's my second problem with this movie. Uh, I, the, I actually really liked him. He's like, he's like a poor man's Michael Bean. His, <laughs> he's, you know, his delivery had a, a, a Stallone-ness to it yeah. that was, um, that worked in certain circumstances, but it was a little too one note for me. I know he's supposed to be this aloof badass and yeah, that works, but, uh, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have like the winking kind of charm of, of Kurt Russell in, in a similar kind of role in, uh, in escape from New York. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I just, I felt like of, especially of the leads that we're talking about here, Diane Lane, obviously we're talking Diane Lane, Willem Dafoe, Rick Moranis. I mean, who's going to be the odd man out here. You know what I mean? Um, I just felt like that it it was interesting to see a movie so perfectly cast and then have the lead performance be the weakest link in there. But yeah, he's, he's so, he's so square. Like he's physically square. His, his voice is, is, is flat and he just, yeah. Yeah. So He's, he's so, uninteresting compared to every other actor in the movie exactly and that's and that is why i can't fully like there was a part of this while i was watching this movie where i was like this is a five-star movie like i am on board with streets of fire um but then he brought me back down to earth a little bit and uh and that's why i can't fully embrace it as much as i would like to because um 
in in almost every other capacity this movie's uh just killing it you know it's it's, it's see i i'm i'm okay with that I'm, I'm okay with 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 such a solid or or stolid uh lead performance like i you kind of you, you kind of want somebody to be the square in the center of all the craziness and 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 he is that like yeah, he's but... he's not he's not particularly clever he's not charming He's... Yeah, but I'm not saying he needs to be charming or clever. I, I think another actor could could play the role the same way, but succeed more. Like I, I someone could be that aloof and that distant and that you know um, detached from everything. But well, the thing is, he's not he's not really aloof and detached. Like he's he's heartbroken. Yeah, and that's and that uh, and that gets to kind of the the love story element of the film, which I which I think is really interesting. That uh, he and and Diane Lane used to date, and then he went away and joined the army, and she hooked up with Rick Moranis, who's her manager, and obviously she is way out of Rick Moranis's league. <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> How dare you? But and and then you know Paré comes back to town and and he's he's very sad like his his girl is as has left him for for riches and and financial success and and you know this this kind of love story this conflict between the two of them like she's pissed at him because she he didn't come to rescue her just on his own he had to get paid to do it uh which which is neat and uh. You know, when the, the the movie gets to a point where, like, the action ends, but the movie still goes on for another 15 minutes. And this was, you know, this had the, the song that you didn't like, that uh, looking at the Wikipedia notes, apparently the song that was supposed to be the finale there was uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, Streets of Fire. Uh, but uh, Springsteen wouldn't let the song be recorded by other singers. So they had to come up with something else. Uh Anyway, the uh, the the resolution to the love story ends unexpectedly, and and I like that you know they get together and then they split apart again, leaving yeah. everyone basically where they were when the movie started. Uh, there's like the there's this really romantic thing where there there he walks away and she chases after him and they and they kiss in this pouring rainstorm and then and then Hill cuts and they're they're naked in bed but they're still wet from the rainstorm, <laughs> which means that they had to go somewhere check into a hotel, have sex, before that they could dry off from the rainstorm, <laughs> which I think is a, a really neat little little <laughs> touch that isn't you know, isn't really emphasized, but it's just like a little detail to the movie. I don't know. I, I, I think it worked. I thought, well, he, I, th I thought I he was fine. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's great. I mean, I didn't, I didn't actively hate him or anything. I just, sure. he was, he was kind of a, a bit of a black hole that kind of siphoned off some of my enthusiasm uh, for the for the film, I think I think if if someone else was rocking that role, um, it, it this easily could have been like in my top ten of well maybe not you'd have to do something about the excessive uh, songs uh, at the end but uh, but yeah it, it's a really 
it's a really fun movie. I'm not trying to disparage it. I think it's it's really good. It's really solid. And as I said at the beginning, I think it's, uh, you know, I haven't seen, you know, I'm not like a Walter Hill um, connoisseur or anything like that. But uh, it is of the, of the stuff of his I've seen. I think it is my favorite film um, of his, which um, might be a bit controversial because, I mean, he's got some uh, big name stuff out there. Yeah, I'm I'm curious now. What which are your five favorite soundtracks? We probably should have done this category in the award show, but whatever. Oh, from from the from the year. Yeah. Uh, so let's see here. My my five favorite soundtracks for 1984 are going to be This Is Spinal Tap, um, obviously Purple Rain, which we've been listening to all episode, uh, Repo Man. Uh, all that great like SoCal punk stuff uh, is is really great. Uh, obviously, stop making sense. And let's see, where would I go? You know, I do really like the theme from Beverly Hills Cop. I I will admit that that's a pretty pretty dope tune. What, what there. about the theme from Ghostbusters? Oh, I love the theme from Ghostbusters too. Mm-hmm. See, that's tricky. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the the five spot is is kind of a it's a wild card yeah. there. But you also have scores like the great Ennio Morricone score from Once Upon a Time in America. You do, yeah. Uh, the Starman score. Uh, we talked yeah. about that. That yep, John. Yeah. yeah, the John Carpenter stuff. Uh, yeah. So it's. I mean, you know, I'd have to. I'd have to do one. I mean, there's. I a think. Lot of I think you 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 have to have Footloose on that. I, I love the Footloose soundtrack. I love every bit of it. It is. Would you put Footloose over Repo Man? Yeah, I would. Well, see. But that's know, the difference between you and me. That That is the difference between <laughs> you and me. Put that on a t-shirt. Uh, also, yeah. the, the Cotton Club is a is a terrific soundtrack. Uh, Amadeus. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, this is like the greatest year for music and film ever. I mean, it, it really is. I actually, I even like the, the Toto soundtrack for Dune. Yeah, <laughs> Dune. The less, the less said about. I know you, you liked Dune a, a lot more than I did, and I love David Lynch. But I am sorry, I have to join the, the, you know, the the squealing masses here. I hated Dune. <laughs> I fucking hated Dune. It's so, it's so weird. It's so bad. It. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if it's bad. I. It might be. But it I, is. but I, but I, it's bad in a Trust way me. that I, I really, really liked. <laughs> it, it's just bad. I mean, you watched the the three hour cut, so that's different. Yeah. You know, I, I saw the theatrical cut, so maybe your version's better. But um, uh, choose me is another one with the great soundtrack by by Teddy Pendergrass. That's that's just in every inch of the movie, just infusing it. It's Full Moon in Paris, the Eric Romer film. Yeah, which yeah. The, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's some great Night of the Comet uh, has it's really weird. Night of the Comet has some good music in it, um, kind of. I don't know, maybe, um, but it has the weirdest thing. There's the scene. Have you seen Night of the Comet? Uh, there's a scene where the two sisters, um, you know, there's been an apocalypse and basically the entire city of Los Angeles has been wiped out. And so these two sisters uh, end up in a an abandoned or what they think is at the time an abandoned uh, sh- department store in a shopping mall. And they kind of just go nuts. They, you know, try on all these fancy clothes and goof off and stuff. And there's this version of girls just want to have fun that is it's so eerily close to the Cindy Lauper version. Like there's some kind of weird 
I mean, it, but it's not because they couldn't afford the rights or something like that. So they did this like uh, karaoke version of it practically that is so strange that you just got to check it out. It's really weird. It's like I've never heard something emulate something so perfectly, but still just missed the essence of the song in a weird way. You know, it's another good score. Top Secret. Mm-hmm. It's got some good like that fifties kind of rock and roll stuff going on. I want to rewatch that one. Did you did you watch Paris, Texas? Because that's probably the most famous one that we haven't mentioned yet. Skeet surfing. Uh, no, I did not watch Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, there, yeah, I have a, my watch list on Letterboxd. Um, there are a number of big names that I didn't get, and I shouldn't say a huge number of big names I didn't get to. Um, I didn't get to Paris, Texas, which I I wanted to. Uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. I did not see. That's a really cool movie. I know. I I should need to check that one out. Um, I, you know, I love Steve Martin. Uh, I had all of me at home for like a month from the library and I kept putting it off. (laughs) So I didn't watch that. Um, A few movies that you um, turned me on to, uh, at least title wise, uh, Love in a Fallen City. Um, uh, That's a really good, that's a really good one with with China Fat uh, and and White directed, I believe. Uh, Yeah. It's a good melodrama, kind of historical love story Um, kind of thing. Yeah, so there were some, you know, I didn't see Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which I'm sure would have really topped every every list I would have had. Um, But yeah, I think Paris, Texas is the biggest omission. Um, Yeah, it's one that I I did not like. Yeah, it's it's like I I respected it, but I did not like it. Yeah, well, that happens. Yeah. well, let's take our last little break and we'll do a little recap and a setup for everything else. Uh, we're going to listen to uh, yet another Prince song here. Um, let's. I think we, since we're talking about the soundtracks and stuff, um, we need to hear the title track from Purple Rain, um, which the little trivia on this one, I've got trivia up the wazoo here, people. Uh, Eric Clapton, who some people call God, uh, at least the guitar god uh, has claimed that the guitar solo in Purple Rain is the greatest guitar solo ever made and so let's hear a little bit of that right now
Oh, the only other one I wanted to talk about is uh, is this movie Furious. You saw this too. I did not see Furious. Oh, you didn't see Furious. No, I saw so many '84 like movies like that. I saw um, uh, Ninja Three: The Domination. Uh, I I, I assure you've never seen a movie like Furious. Well, have you seen Ninja Three: The Domination? Uh, I have not, but you have never seen a movie like Furious. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll just have to. You know what we'll do. We'll 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 swap stories on those uh, at a later date. I, I uh, tried to rent Ninja Three: The Domination, but it was out at Scarecrow because I believe you had rented it. <laughs> <laughs> Got the Blu-ray, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but Furious is is an astoundingly weird movie. It's it's really really terrific. I really want to see it. I mean, yeah, I, I ranked it higher than Love Streams, also. <laughs> <laughs> um if they have it like dvdr right i mean it's really yeah. hard to find yeah yeah it was uh, uh, it was never it was like ever only barely released like on vhs or something but but yeah it's it's good stuff so what are we talking about next week on the show uh next time on the show uh so uh right now um playing th- i think through the end of the year the grand illusion cinema is playing um it's a wonderful life as they have done for the last 40 years um or so and uh and they're going to continue it into uh into or not not that movie but they're going to continue with jimmy stewart into the new year um showing uh, i think we talked about this in the last show actually they're going to show philadelphia story and uh shop around the corner yep two and two so- two great films from 1940 that's right. And so we're going to do our, you know, this is a long time coming here on this show, especially considering he is your uh, favorite actor of all time. We're going to do the Jimmy Stewart show of the George Sanders show. Uh, we're going to talk about Shopworn Angel and Cheyenne Social Club, uh, both films that neither of us have seen, correct? Uh, I saw the Shopworn Angel quite a while ago, and I'm uh-huh. really wanting to watch it again. It's got uh, Stewart and, and Margaret Sullivan. Which is the other reason you want to watch it. Mm, uh, <laughs> I, do. I do love Margaret Sullivan. Oh, you're creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be the next show uh, coming down the pipeline. Um, and then uh, a year from now, uh, gear up now, uh, we are going to do what we did this year. Uh, you know, we did 84 this year. We did 1933 last year. Uh, and this time, at the end of 2015, we're going to do 1965. Uh, so I've started making a watch list for all that. Surprisingly, I've not seen a lot of movies from 1965, so I have a lot of work cut out for me on that. So I, uh, I currently have 28. I have seven. <laughs> uh, that is that is counting uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. I that is also counting Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay, mine mine are ranked from uh, Pierre Lafoe to That Darn Cat. So. Ooh. All right. Well, I, I will make sure to get to that darn cat so that I, I'll be part of the conversation uh, in December of 2015. Uh, we'd love to hear feedback from people uh, on on this show in particular, 1984. Uh, why, you know, if you could do us the favor, get on the Twitter, uh, Geo Sanders Show, 
send us your top film of 84. Um, you know, tell us uh, that we're idiots for not including uh, Temple of Doom or something like that. Or as long as you don't include 16 Candles, uh, I'll be I'll be happy. Um, 16 Candles is really awesome. Oh, it's the You're worst. You're totally wrong about that. I fucking hate that movie <laughs> so much. But anyway, tell us... Tell us what your favorite movie in 1984 is. Uh, you can also email us at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot or at gmail.com. I'll say that again. You can also email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. And our website, as always, is thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Um, if you are in Portland, uh, there is a great theater there called the Hollywood Theater. Um, they do gr- a Kung Fu Grindhouse thing there. They do other um, kind of grindhousey films um as well as show you know new releases and stuff and uh i i think i've been wanting to talk about them for a while and i have, have not yet done that and uh they are gonna get um 70 millimeter capability in the new year and i want to congratulate them for that they haven't announced what they're going to be running quite yet um but uh, they i think are going to be the only theater in the entire state of oregon that will be uh 70 millimeter capable which is going to be super cool um but what i'm going to suggest people go see is uh, thursday january 22nd at the hollywood theater in portland oregon uh they're going to show the documentary on the band dead moon uh called unknown passage uh and it's a pretty great documentary on a really fascinating band from the northwest um who a lot of people just you know their dead moon it means a lot to a lot of people um and they broke up a couple of years ago. It's been a few years now. But anyway, uh, Fred and Tootie, the uh, husband-wife duo behind the band, will be at this uh, screening and will be performing after the film uh, a bunch of songs from Dead Moon. Um, so that's just going to be super cool. So that's uh, Thursday, January 22nd at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon. That sounds fun. I have never heard a note of Dead Moon. Dead Moon's really good. We should listen to them on a future show. Dead Moon, we'll listen to Dead Moon on the Jimmy Stewart show of the George Sanders show. <laughs> I... Called I'm, it. I'm, I'm thinking of Jimmy Stewart throwing a lasso around the Dead Moon and pulling there it down go. for Donna Reed. <laughs> uh, that same day, uh, Thursday, January 22nd, at the Northwest Film Forum here in Seattle, they are going to be playing Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. What? With a live score from a couple of uh, local musicians. They say, uh, expect a guitar, violin, accordion, banjo, and other instruments. Well, that sounds pretty bitchin'. Yeah, so uh, Steamboat Bill is uh, one of my favorite Buster Keaton movies. For a long time, it was my favorite. Uh, it's probably still in the top three or four, but it's uh, it's a terrific movie. If you haven't seen it, now is a good time. It's the second best Buster Keaton movie to have Junior in the title. I will say that much. I, I would not argue with that. <laughs> Uh, it is pretty great. I really I saw it at the uh, Paramount Theater here in Seattle, uh, God, eight or nine years ago, and it's it's a treat on the on the big screen. That final hurricane scene is just it 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 can't be topped. It's great. Uh, I think that's it for the show. I think we've done everything that we're expected to do here. Yeah. Uh, so we want to thank everybody for listening uh, over the course of the whole year. You know, 2014, it's been a lot of fun. We did some interesting stuff. Um, we had half as many shows as we did in 2013. That's right. Um, but 
but but we we packed in more, Sean. It's it's quality, not quantity. Yeah, there were fewer shows, but they were much longer. That's what I know. God, we were just blowhards. We just need to trim it. Uh, and and look at us now. We're done. I literally just said we're done with everything, and we're still talking. So let's yeah. shut the fuck up. Let's, yeah, let's hear let's hear more Prince. And by, by the way, Prince, a greater deity than Eric Clapton. Without oh, a doubt. Oh my God. Uh, I was gonna say. Did I don't know if I said this top of the show. Uh, Prince is the greatest pop star of if of the eighties and perhaps the 20th century. Like, I'm just going to say it like that stretch, uh, that he did from like the, you know, 1999 through sign of the times. Holy cow. Like, I mean, I love MJ. I love, you know, Madonna, you know, good stuff, but my God, I mean, ballad of Dorothy Parker. You, I mean, he, the guy was just on fire. He's he's still great. He he did the best Super Bowl halftime show ever. He was just on Saturday Night Live a, few, a couple months ago, and it was fantastic. He's he's, he's, he's Prince. He's he's, he's amazing. Prince. Yeah. Let's um, listen to more Prince. I, yeah, let's so, stop so, talking and listen to Prince. We're, yeah. So this is uh, this is when doves cry, uh, which has no bass in the song. We'll see you next time. <laughs>